Hi, I'm Luisa Portugal. And I'm Ria Almeida. This is our show where we talk about coronavirus-related policy issues as we try to navigate this crazy pandemic with you. Today with us, we have Michaela Sparks talking about Native Americans in the healthcare system and Amaka Diaco telling us about the role of the World Health Organization throughout the history of pandemics. Welcome to CoronaCast, a Wagner Review podcast series. Ria, I'm going to be honest, it's a little bit of a weird summer. I think I speak for both of us when I say that we are still very much in lockdown mode, but sometimes it seems like the rest of the country is just going on about their normal lives which might explain why states like Florida, Texas, North and South Carolina and California are reporting record high number of cases. Yeah, it actually looks like early reopening of urban areas has made matters worse. What? I can't I couldn't have seen it coming. <laughs> Some states might even have to now go back into complete lockdown. As Governor Cuomo has warned might happen in New York if lockdown violations continue. I actually saw in my own neighborhood of the East Village, residents have been crowding the streets, there's curbside pickup of cocktails and food, and well, we're living in anything goes times and territory. At least I'm glad that Cuomo is back to do what he does best, you know, fight with New Yorkers for them to stay at home. But that's not just a US thing. In Beijing, authorities had to shut down major markets as the city seen a resurgence in COVID cases after 53 people tested positive on Saturday, all originating from one seafood and vegetable market that employs over 10,000 people. God, this is just a scary, scary week for COVID landmarks. The US actually this week hit 2 million coronavirus cases. Not so much good news from my home country of India either. On Monday, India reported 11,500 new cases, which is the country's highest single-day spike. Yet another sad landmark. Phase 1 reopening also began last week. Cases continue to rise at an alarming rate and hospitals are not being able to deal with this. We are facing in India a severe shortage of doctors, ventilators and PPE. I wish I could say that I was surprised, but welcome to the club. Brazil is now the country with the second highest number of deaths and the highest daily death toll. But don't worry, this hasn't stopped the country to proceed with a very aggressive reopening plan. And to make matters worse, the government decided that they were going to stop reporting total numbers of cases and deaths until the Supreme Court intervened and order the Ministry of Health to go back to reporting it. By the way, this is the same Ministry of Health that is still headless since they lost two ministers in less than a month back in May. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, but this doesn't seem like the right time to, you know, not have a Minister of Health. Seems a bit, yeah, bad timing. Yeah, it's a bad timing to be a health official in general. There was this controversy with the World Health Organization and one of their officials telling a reporter that apparently asymptomatic transmission was very rare. And then Dr. Fossey went on live TV to say that they were absolutely incorrect and that there was a significant rate of transmission among asymptomatic and presymptomatic carriers. 
And finally, the WHO retracted the comment saying that they don't actually have an answer yet. Yeah, that's yeah. It's great when health officials uh, inspire so much confidence during a health crisis. It's the blind leading the blind. Uh, in other news, during Pride Month, Trump reminded everyone of actually why this month is so important and the queer rights movement is still so relevant. In the middle of a public health crisis, his administration is revoking a part of the Affordable Care Act that currently protects trans people from discrimination in hospitals. This is also happening the same week that the Supreme Court has passed a landmark judgment, and I cannot believe this was not already a thing, but LGBTQ Americans are now protected from job discrimination under existing law. I guess we will have to wait and see what that Supreme Court judgment could mean for healthcare, which is still in dangerous territory for trans people. Yeah, put me in the group of the I cannot believe that this wasn't already a thing. And on that note, let's go to our interviews. Our first guest today is Michaela Sparks. She just received her master's in urban planning from NYU Wagner, specializing in international development. She focused the majority of her research on emergency and disasters and their impacts on traditionally underserved communities. So thank you for joining us today, Michaela. Thanks for having me, guys. Um, to start off, can you talk about how our current pandemic disaster has affected the Native American population in the United States? The Navajo Nation uh, and a lot of the Southwestern tribes have been seeing a disproportionate amount of cases as compared to the populations who either don't live on the reservation or on tribal land. Um, and I feel like a lot of that has to do with not necessarily just COVID being in those spaces, um, but the underlying issues, kind of the roots of these problems, such as being traditionally underserved, not having a lot of access to things that tie into this like historical trauma um, or history with the U.S. government. Can you give us more context regarding the historical trauma experienced by the Native American population and how this impacts their relation with the U.S. government? Yeah, I think, I mean, so every, every tribe or group has a little bit of a different history and their connection to the U.S. government. So um, I, at one point back in 2017, I lived in Tahlequah, Oklahoma with the Cherokee Nation close to a lot of the reservations or spaces of what the U.S. calls the five civilized tribes, which were a group that was moved from the East Coast kind of to Oklahoma. Um, and they have a very kind of a, a history that has a lot of friction in it, I would say, um, because of this removal and the Trail of Tears and this history just of kind of saying, oh, wait, you have something we want. Go take this piece that we're not, not as interested in. Um, and so I think that forms a lot of distrust in the government at large. And also the way that the Senate bills were written is that there's about 565 tribes and maybe 2 million folks in that group. The tribes themselves have autonomy, those who are recognized. The autonomy of the reservation or the um, tribal government being recognized as an international uh, being within the United States means that 
there's some things that they have control over. Um, and then there's some things that they can have kind of this dual access, like to the US system, to the tribal system. But there is a disparity uh, in all realms of the word uh, based on if you are a registered member, if you live on the res, if you live in an urban center, and what that means on what kind of access you have to services. So what does that mean when it comes to access to the healthcare system? Um, one of these like Senate bills kind of founded the IHS or the Indian Health Service, which is housed under the Bureau, Bureau of Indian Affairs. And they uh, basically, the federal government of the United States can allot funding through these kind of, I'm not going to say a reparation bill, but this is kind of what it was written as, as a, okay, we get it. We did something wrong. Haha, ha, let's dust it off our shoulder in a way. And how we're going to do that is we're going to say, okay, we're going to write this bill around 1955. Even some of the latest ones were written in like the late sixties. So this is not in old history. Um, and we're going to guarantee that every person who is registered and living on the reservation has access to healthcare, right? And it sounds all fine and dandy, but then you start looking at, well, where do people actually live? And most people live in urban centers. And I think that's the really inter interesting intersection of urban planning right now is that people are urbanizing all over the world. It's a global trend. And yet, we are only offering services to folks who live in the most rural areas of the United States, on the res, for instance. And most of the youth actually are moving off of the res or have relocated to more urban centers. I think the top five cities with the most Native people are New York, LA, Phoenix, Anchorage, Alaska, and Oklahoma City. So when you start to look at that, but those spaces are not federally recognized tribal land, then you cannot have an Indian Health Service Center. During this pandemic, what do you think are the biggest challenges faced by the IHS? And what policy changes do you want to see? They're extremely underfunded. And not only that, they're understaffed. In 2013, we saw an $800 million budget cut to the IHS. In these times right now, of course, there's talks about should we be giving more money or what can we do? But I think the number one issue is there's no one sitting at, on the House or Senate committee who is a representative from any of the federally recognized tribes. There are folks that can be there and advocate and lobby, but they don't have a vote. And I think that's the biggest thing is if you don't have the power to vote or to say what your people need, how are you supposed to seize that opportunity or get an increase in services for your populace? In terms of policy, like that's the biggest shift is we need to see more representation. Um, so until you have this education and recognition of the history that we're seeing going on with a lot of movements right now and say, how can we address this in a like systematic and approachable way with those people at the table, actually with those people making the decisions, then it, it won't really get solved completely. You mentioned needing more representation in policy making rooms. How close are we from that actually happening? There are uh, tribes who are now advocating um, against the US government to say, we, we want one seat. Give us one seat at the table. Um, 
And of course it was supposed to actually go into place. I was, I was looking, there was um, a woman actually from the Cherokee Nation in North Carolina who was supposed to begin her kind of being a seat at the table in around May because of COVID that was pushed off. But let's see if it ever kind of gets back on the table. Going forward, how do you expect COVID to affect the lives of the Native American population? Yeah, I mean, I think with COVID, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, all over the country, we're seeing this again with spikes of um, whether it's going to be second wave or whatever it is right now, as people are reopening or becoming less cautious as summer is here. Um, but especially through the winter time, that can be extremely tough when you're living on the reservation. So we're, knock on wood, crossing fingers, hoping for the best in a way um, that it doesn't kind of decimate a population of people. Some uh, tribes really have less than 100 members left. Um, and those folks hold the key to language groups that would go extinct, um, food knowledge, traditional medicinal knowledge, things like that, that we really don't take for, uh, we, we don't value it enough, but we take it for granted. Um, so I think, in terms of COVID, like we, again, it's just like hoping for the best, but also there's a ton of nonprofits and tribal groups that are doing amazing work to try and combat this. And you can access all this information online of like how to best support them in their efforts. Thank you, Michaela. That was a great interview. And we are going to put links in the description for some of the resources that you mentioned. Our next guest is Chamaka Diaco, a current MPA health policy student interested in health system reform. Originally from Nigeria, Amaka is also a lawyer and a health equity advocate. Thank you for coming here, Amaka. We want to talk about the historical context of pandemics and the role that the World Health Organization played in them. So why don't we start with the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic? In what ways would you say that this pandemic is still relevant today? The one of 1918 was kind of interesting and reflects some of the things that have been happening currently with the COVID-19 um, pandemic. And one of that is the role that globalization and political interests could play in the spread of diseases, that's one and also the importance of communication. The Spanish flu wasn't Spanish flu because it emanated from Spain, but because Spain was the only country, one of the only countries that was reporting the number of cases they had. So you mentioned the role that political interests can have in the way that countries handle pandemics. In the case of the 1918 flu, what were those interests? In that instance, there was a war. No member states wanted to seem weak to the next member state. And they didn't also want to reduce the morale of their soldiers. For instance, America, America was an interesting case at that time because they passed a sedition act that prevented um, non-state actors, um, the media, from giving out information on the numbers or saying anything that would make the US to look weak. So it, it shows you that there is a political thread to pandemics too. I think this would be important going further because you hear a lot of people say things like, oh, we're politicizing public health. There should be no politics in public health. I get their point. Health should precede politics. But a better understanding of how politics comes in 
in public health would help international organizations like the World Health Organizations to be more strategic in their response. Absolutely. Um, I love that you said that whenever people say don't politicize healthcare, don't politicize the pandemic, Louisa and I always talk about, but it is political. Health exactly. is political. Yeah, I 100% agree. But to continue with the historical timeline, we want to talk about the SARS outbreak of 2003, because this also had some interesting political consequences. So how did the World Health Organization change their approach after it? It's important to understand that the, the relationship between the World Health Organization and member states is that of principle and agent. So the World Health Organization is struggling between being the moral voice for health in the world and also making sure that they don't overstep their boundaries as agents. But one of the ways they've been able to circumvent that is by using the discretion that is afforded to them by regulations. Director generals of World Health Organization were put in a position where they had to exceed the authority that was in their mandate. And that was because sometimes a country would have a disease outbreak and they wouldn't report even after several attempts demanding that they do so. But SARS was significant because it, it was very scary. <laughs> the rate at which it was spreading was scary. China at that time was not giving, was not transparent enough. So the director general's hands were tied. So he had to issue like some travel restrictions to some of the countries that were affected. And you don't do that under the regulation. So after that, member states came together and reviewed the current um, regulations. So the implication of that amendment was that director generals don't have to wait for state actors to give them information about disease outbreaks. Non-state actors can also give them that information. And based on the information that they get, they can declare public health emergency, which is something very important. It's interesting that you talk about how important the WHO can be because currently the US federal government has committed to defunding the WHO. What does that mean for coronavirus response? From previous experiences like SARS, Ebola, once there is a blockage between the member states and World Health Organization, the situation worsens. Some member states are probably taking advantage of some of these loopholes to cover up the things they didn't do in their own, within their own jurisdiction. So it's more or less like, if I can't explain why I didn't do A and B, who do I blame? The World Health Organization. <laughs> so defunding them is, is counterproductive. Think about it this way. If you defund them and the cases escalate in some member states, you're delaying our opportunity to move forward. Because one thing that the COVID-19 has shown, apart from the other pandemics, is that there is no isolation in the spread of diseases. After one of the pandemics that happened, one of the recommendations from the, one of the committees that was set up to consider the, how good their response was, was to set up a fund for subsequent pandemics. So right now, the World Health Organization is equally operating from that funding. I think they've released about $9 billion to states, member states that need it. 80% of their funding comes from voluntary contributions and remaining 20 from states' contributions. And that's, that's not sustainable. So that means even people that give to you freely say, we're not giving to you this year, the World Health Organization being a standstill. 
Going forward, what changes do you want to see in international public health policy? It's about time that we begin to explore what is called the political determinants of health. There's so much emphasis on the social determinants of health and very little emphasis on understanding the political determinants of health. It's very important that global health governance begins to take cognizance of the impact of interest, power, power tussles, conflict of interest, legitimacy, understanding the social and political context of countries in designing programs, because what might work in country A might not fit country B. All these things are very important. Thank you so much. This was so good and so informative. I love the historical context that you set for us. And thank you for listening. If you want to take part in the discussions as they happen, reach out to the Wagner Review email address below to join our student-led weekly coronavirus meetings. And we'll see you next week on CoronaCast, a Wagner Review podcast series.